This is episode 75 of The New Disruptors, a book event in Portland. Permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. This episode of The New Disruptors is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity, who asked us not to read an ad. Enjoy the show. Welcome to The New Disruptors. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of the magazine. This is a special live episode we recorded in Portland, Oregon. Now, in April 2014, we came out with our kind of public launch of the magazine, The Book, you know, which is part of my day job is putting out that fine publication. This is a book that was kickstarted. We talked about it in a previous episode. I'll link in the show notes, uh, which Jason Snell interviewed me about the process of making a book and, and going through a campaign. It's a culmination of a, a lot of time and effort. And we wanted to have live book events to celebrate with people who backed it and to introduce some new people to it. So we did uh, an event in Seattle with Marion Call, who's featured in the book. We did an event in San Francisco, where we got to meet a bunch of folks down there, including a lot of contributors, and then closed it out at the end of April in Portland at an independent bookstore that had, in fact, raised money to reopen itself through Kickstarter. So it's a it's a pretty wonderful combination of factors that, that led to these events. So we're celebrating the book, and if you know that you would like a copy of this, it's still available in hardcover and electronic form. Go to the-magazine.com slash book, and you can find out about the many ways we've made it available. Part of producing this campaign was to experiment with the means of funding and production. So we have not just the hardcover, which is a heavy item and thus cheaper to ship within the United States, but also have created a print-on-demand version that has the entire contents of the extended ebook. Now, this print-on-demand version is printed in black and white with a nice color paperback cover in different countries. So if you live outside the United States, the paperback print-on-demand edition is actually very affordable and looks quite good. So in our Portland event, I asked four of our contributors to read short excerpts of Works Aloud, uh, three of which are in the book or ebook. And I also invited the sisters Angela and Aubrey Weber, who perform as the Double Clicks, to come and perform. We had this wonderful conjunction in Portland of a, a lot of interesting people at the event. We held it at Reading Frenzy, uh, a magazine and bookstore that looks for alternative and independent products to carry. They lost their lease on a location in downtown Portland over a year ago, then had a lead on a new location which fell through and had to shut down. Now, the owner, uh, Chloe Udali, she decided with the encouragement of some friends to put out a, a large Kickstarter campaign for $50,000 and funded it. The store reopened a few months ago, and we were happy to come and focus some attention on them, and, and it was delightful for them to, to host us. And you'll hear Chloe introduce me at the beginning of this recording. Also in the audience was Andy Bayo, who you've heard on this show, as uh, one of the founders of the XOXO Festival, and has done a lot of interesting things. So Andy not only was the original chief technology officer of Kickstarter, but they funded the first XOXO through Kickstarter, and he is just in the middle of funding Upcoming. This is a calendar and event site for things that used to not kind of get on the radar for people that he founded with some other folks a few years ago, was sold to Yahoo, and then kind of uh, went into disrepair and was shut down. Yahoo made it available to him to buy back, and he's raising money and has well exceeded his goal to bring back the archives and build a new Upcoming. So Andy was one of the encouragements that led to me to join the magazine to start this podcast, and he was in the audience 
today. And the Double Clicks themselves are recent guests because they just raised a bunch of money to go more independent. Aubrey quit her day job and Angela is able to focus more of her time. They're releasing an album. They're doing a tour. Uh, so even in this one small bookstore in Portland, Oregon, you can find so many examples from the book we did to the musicians to people in the audience just what this is all about, how you find new ways of doing things and, and pursuing the thing you love with the help of people who want it, you to make it happen. So this episode is a, a little special thing for all of us, and you'll hear excerpts from all these stories, some uh, songs from the Double Clicks, and near the end, of course, our tape recorder failed, and uh, you'll hear Chris Higgins, who's reading the last piece, introduce the fact that he had to switch to re-recording just the last part of it. So enjoy, and thanks for tuning in for this, and thanks for your support, as always. Hello. Woo. Uh, my name's Chloe. This is my shop, Reading Frenzy. As oh, thank you, thank you. I my reputation precedes me as usual. Um, so welcome to our new location. We've been over here for almost six months now, and we're enjoying it. Uh, there's usually a lot more stuff in the store. In case you were wondering what kind of bookstore you were in that hardly had any books. We hide a bunch of stuff in the back for events. Uh, We're very pleased to welcome Glenn and many contributors from the magazine, which is one of thousands of successfully launched projects thanks to Kickstarter. And I always like to give them little plugs because we also probably wouldn't be here without Kickstarter. So... It's a big Kickstarter love fest tonight. Um, As I mentioned earlier, there are free there's free beer and and wine in the corner if you want it. And uh, I'm gonna turn it over to Glenn. Thanks for coming. Thank you. I feel like there's an audience of thousands because it's uh, it's been, it's, it's been fun. Uh, this is the, the third and last stop on the book tour uh, for the magazine, the book. And I, it's, it's been fun because I wasn't sure who was going to show up to any of these. And uh, so it's a lot of old, you know, old friends here, some new friends, a few people I don't know even. And this has been true at each of them. And it's after having spent so much time working electronically to actually get out and meet people and, uh, and say thank you to everybody. Thank you for people who came out. Thank you for people who backed it. Thank you for people who participated in it, wrote in it. It's been a hoot. And, um, and to actually come in the real world. And, and thanks to Andy Bayo for recommending Reading Frenzy, because this is the other part of it, too, is I feel like we're trying to celebrate independence and creativity and what we can all do on our own, and this is a shop full of it, so it's great to be here, too. So we've got a few readings. We're recording tonight for posterity, so then we can have a little bit of post-celebration. We've got a few readings. John Patrick Pullen is there in the back. He's going to come to a reading, and then Allison, do you want to read after that? And then we'll have some music by the Double Clicks and uh, a couple more readings, and then we'll all just... Be staying around and drinking and talking. So copies of the book, if you are not one of the uh, people who had bought a copy in advance, there are copies of the book here. And then we also have books by Ellie Blue and Chris Higgins and maybe somebody else. I don't know. Shannon oh, Shannon Wheeler. Excellent. Over there, other contributors and fine individuals who are uh, part of this whole thing. And um, so let me welcome. So uh, let me, I guess I'll give you the background. Most of you probably know this because you're, you've been involved in the project. But, uh, you know, the book... Um, after producing something in, in bits for so long, you want to do something real, and the book is the realization of that. And I wanted to find stories that would stand the test of time that 
in five or ten years, you look back at the nonfiction, and some of it would be a product of its time and, and feel, maybe not dated, but tell you something about the year in which it was written, and other things would last. And um, John, John's story starts the collection because it's such a... Uh, it's such a strange tale, and it is so perfectly what we've set out to do with the magazine stories, which is tell you stories about people, but also there's some kind of aspect of technology. There's things, there's a, a mystery in it that you sort of have to solve. It's not apparent what's going on and why. And so John will come up and read a little bit of, do you have, oh, I forgot, you've got, the, he's even got it there, of a Beacon of Hope. Thanks, John, come on up. Exactly my hope. Oh, that, that works perfect. I'm actually going to put my sunglasses on and be the worst person in the... Hold on. No, it's total, they're totally ineffective. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I came across this story. Uh, I was working as a travel editor, and I discovered... Um, I discovered the the Soap Lake lava lamp, which exists in the middle of uh, Washington State, perfectly right in the middle, which is also the middle of really nowhere. And uh, so I went out to investigate it and discovered that it also didn't exist. So in looking into this, I've kind of discovered that this is the greatest idea that has never happened. Uh, Sorry to spoil the, the, the story. The nighttime view from Brent Blake's window offers a view straight down through, uh, through downtown Soap Lake, Washington, past the soft glow of Masker's Theater's marquee and the neon beard signs in the Del Red pub, ending about a mile away where paved roads give away to sagebrush, high desert, and darkness. Situated at the corner of Main Street and Highway 17, which sports the town's only stoplight, This view is all most people ever see of Soap Lake as they blow through, headed for anywhere else. The locals, however, all 1,514 of them, they see much more. They see the allure of a rugged, almost Martian landscape carved by the cataclysmal force of an Ice Age flood. They see the potential of a once-bustling, wellness-centric resort town about 180 miles southeast of Seattle, where thousands of early 20th century vacationers would spend summers soaking in the lake's magical, healing waters. They see a home base from which hikers, hunters, and boaters have easy access to the outdoors. And they see hope in a giant lava lamp standing in the middle of town, drawing curious passerby off the highway with a slow, hypnotic, goopy glow. But 11 years into the efforts to build the 60-foot-tall whimsical wonder, They've also seen the reasons that no one has ever before constructed a six-story tower of lights, hot wax, and oil. Impractical, expensive, underfunded, and perhaps even technologically impossible, the Soap Lake lava lamp has proved more complicated to build than anyone had ever imagined. And as the concept became bigger than the city itself, they had no alternative but to build it. The lava lamp will happen in Soap Lake, says Wayne Hobdy, the city's former mayor. When? I can't tell you, but it will happen. This year, coinciding with the 50th anniversary of the iconic lamp's invention, efforts have renewed to finish the infamous unbuilt public art installation. To date, the idea has undergone three different designs and endured two city mayors, and it may soon outlive its 72-year-old creator. 
Brent Blake was diagnosed with terminal acute myeloid leukemia last September. He was given two months to live. Blake first conceived of building the world's first Uh, the world's largest lava lamp, in May 2002, while staring out the window and thinking of ways to convince motorists to pull into town and spend money. Ever-changing, never the same, it would draw people like crazy, says Blake. It would make a great tourist attraction. And while the concept may sound bizarre, it seems perfectly reasonable in comparison to Blake's full body of work. An architect, magazine publisher, and artist... The long-haired, gray-bearded impresario seems to never have heard the word can't. A tour of his Soap Lake Art Museum begins with his electric chess set made of sockets and light bulbs he wired entirely himself. He mummifies everyday objects like tennis rackets and toaster ovens on commission. On a table sits a model of another proposed project, Soaphenge, that never got off the ground. A full-size recreation of Stonehenge using massive concrete bars of soap. Blake thinks this one is totally doable. It would only cost around $100,000, he says. Nearby, at Dry Falls, a a horseshoe-shaped chasm 20 miles north of Soap Lake that's 10 times the height of Niagara Falls and is believed to have once been the world's largest waterfall Blake proposed building a self-perpetuating cascade. The National Park Service, however, politely declined. If a dry falls is interesting, a wet falls is spectacular, Blake reasons. Yet the lamp concept caught on with townsfolk mostly because of the bizarre way Blake launched the project. Instead of drawing up architectural plans, looking for land, getting financial support, or even asking for the city's permission, he created posters pulled together a website, and launched a two-year marketing campaign that made it seem like the lamp was already operational. With Blake's posters in nearly every business and lava lamps adorning the shops, the idea alone generated a buzz that had been absent from Soap Lake for decades. At the Visitor's Information Center, tourists descended from as far away as South Korea and Eastern Europe, asking for directions to the lamp. Media outlets from the BBC to the LA Times also flocked to the city, but when they arrived, they found little more than a dozen closed shops on Main Street. This went everywhere in the world, and it's a non-existent project, says Blake. It's just make-believe. It's a poster in an idea. But because it's so weird, the media fell in love with it. And though the lamp has been Blake's foremost project over the past decade, he seems barely wistful about the possibility of not seeing it built. That's because for him, the art is in the effort, not the effect. People are hesitant to experiment, to try, or do. It's a natural hindrance to expression, says Blake, when asked about his legacy. I say push all that in the background, start throwing paint on the canvas, and not be worried or afraid it's not going to turn out right. So for the rest of the story, you're going to have to buy the book. Thank you. Uh, and then, uh, Allison, which one are you going to read from? You've got, just, you've got choices. Is it about nudists or it's about nudists. nudists? Excellent. This is, you know, th- this is the uh, one reason I had to come to Portland to do an event is that I think uh, 
like half the magazine contributors live here. Most of you are here. Thank you for coming out. Uh, and um, there's so many Portlandy things that are in the book, and it's not intentional. And in the magazine, it's just the same spirit, I think, that pervades you know, what we want to explore uh, happens to be in great abundance nearby. So uh, this is What Lies Beneath is the title. This is the other great thing about running a magazine. You get to take the most horrible, punny title you can think of and done 200 of those. Yeah, yeah. Alice, Alice House, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so, yeah, so what lies beneath is naked flesh in this story. Um, so, the first thing you notice when meeting a nudist in his natural habitat is that he's naked. There's no way around it. No matter how open-minded you think you are when you meet your first nudist, you'll probably find yourself making unusually good eye contact to avoid, you know, looking at him. But what's really surprising, more surprising than the sight of bright sun on the bare flesh of a man old enough to be your father, is how quickly that self-consciousness melts away. In the August 7, 1938 edition of the Oregonian columnist Virgil Smith described a trip to Camp Hesperia, a nudist camp outside of Estacada, Oregon. Here's a quote from that article. He says, Your correspondent was shocked when he entered Camp Hesperia and saw men, women, and children strolling about in nothing but shoes, shocked that he was not shocked. Another shock came with the realization of self-consciousness, even embarrassment in clothes, and a third shock that, should he shed his own clothes, he would not be embarrassed at all. Smith went on to diplomatically conclude that while he found nudists to be a friendly egalitarian bunch, people are, quote, much more inspiring as companions when at least the worst of their physical imperfections are shielded from view. Which is a wonderful quote. Yes, it's true. Um, Smith's observation conforms precisely to my own experience 75 years later at Squaw Mountain Ranch, the same camp visited by Smith in 1938. They changed their name to Squaw Mountain Ranch, which I think was an unfortunate rebranding, but sort of beside the point. Anyway, I first visited the camp in 2010 with a friend who was writing about Squaw Mountain's attempt to beat the world record for skinny dipping. Um, with 51 participants, they didn't succeed. They didn't come close. The world record is 729. But I was taken by how cheerful and earnest everyone was. The nudists I met were just like anyone else with a geeky pastime that the rest of the world doesn't understand. Friendly, welcoming, and eager to explain their lifestyle to the uninitiated. If you have any preconceived notions about what kind of person takes up nudism, five minutes talking to Squaw Mountain's groundskeeper, Ron Coyle, will dispel them. He's serious, thoughtful, down-to-earth. I'm a country boy, he says when I ask him why he became a nudist. This is about as country as I can be and still have people around. Squaw Mountain's in the middle of nowhere in Estacada. It's surrounded by logging camps. The atmosphere is wholesome. It's like a summer camp for naked grown-ups. The word... Family comes up a lot among Squaw Mountain's residents, and they mean it both figuratively and literally. Tattooed, friendly Terry, Ron's daughter, tells me about the first time she reluctantly came to visit her dad at Squaw Mountain. I really didn't want to see my dad naked, she confesses. And then we get up here, and who should lead us to our spot but my naked dad? Four days later, I was asking to be a member. Every time they said member, I was like, guys. But anyway. <laughs> her children learned to swim at the camp. Her son-in-law, who initially feared that Squaw Mountain would be a, quote, perv cave and refused to let his children visit, relented after Terry brought him for a visit to see how innocuous and kid-friendly it really is. Uh, now Terry's grandchildren are regulars, too, making Ron the stoic patriarch of four generations of Squaw Mountain campers. The campsite campground looks like the setting of a Meatballs-esque 80s movie. I mean, on a sunny day in August, 
Ron and his fellow camper Dave take me on a tour as a dachshund named Annie makes wild circles underfoot. It was my second visit to Squaw Mountain, and the only moment my composure threatened to dissolve totally was when I heard was when I heard myself say "wiener dog." I, I'm sorry, the dick puns. I can't. It was. I'm not. I was not mature enough for this. Squaw Mountain boasts 15 cabins as well as RV hookups and space for tent camping. The cabins were salvaged from a nearby logging camp in the 50s, and they've all been upgraded and customized over the years. Today, they're cheerful and colorful and personalized with bits of kitsch, like a little neon sign that says live nudes outside of one lady's cabin. A few people at the camp play shuffleboard, wearing hats to at least cover their heads from the sun, and a few more sit in camp chairs in front of tents or RVs, just like campers anywhere except not wearing pants. There's a rec room with ping pong and foosball, and a small gift store that sells nudist clothing, which sounds like an oxymoron. (laughs) Until you see that all the clothes are mesh. (laughs) Um, Also, as more than one person pointed out to me, nudists like being naked, but they're not stupid. They wear clothes in the winter. (laughs) Um, There's a trail at the camp that leads down to a man-made lake named Lake Opal, which is named for one of the camp's original founders. Her photo is pasted into a collaged poster of historical photographs in the camp's dining hall. There are other photos in the collage of attractive young people, like, reclining in pinup poses or, you know, handsome men with women dangling from their arms. And they all sort of reveal this youthful past that is not at all represented in the camp these days. Today's members are more likely to have 20-year-olds of their own than to be 20-year-olds, which is kind of a problem for them, actually. We're having trouble attracting young people, says Ron. Most people who come up here are retired, their kids are gone, they're at loose ends looking for something to do. A lot of people's kids don't even know what their parents are up to. Think about that when your parents take their next vacation. Um, Squaw Mountain has tried to attract younger crowds. They have a music festival. They do a spring break week. Um, And these efforts parallel the attempts of nudist organizations nationwide, which have seen their numbers decline in recent years. Uh, But... I'm going to skip. So there's a lot of sort of backstory that I'm skipping in the interest of brevity, and then buy the book if you're interested. But anyway, to sort of cut to the chase, um, the Squaw Mountain campers all kind of say the same things when they talk about why they were drawn to the nudist lifestyle. They talk about freedom. They talk about acceptance. They talk about how you can really get to know someone when they're naked without the sort of obvious markers of like class and status that clothing convey. They also talk about. They share kind of a an objection to what they call a pervasive cultural fallacy that there's something inherently sexual about nakedness. They keep saying, nude, not lewd. (laughs) They say that a lot. Um, Squaw Mountain's version of nudism isn't sexy or glamorous. Instead of big-breasted women playing volleyball in slow motion, there are senior citizens playing shuffleboard in slow motion. (laughs) It's not Burning Man. It's more like urban homesteading, people who get really excited about making their own soap. Um... Whether Squaw Mountain succeeds in its efforts to attract new members or not, there's something sort of wholesome and endearing and charming about the fact that our little camp in the middle of the wilderness, four generations of nudists are keeping the family tradition alive. Thank you. Also thank Pat Moran there in the back who took the photos for the story. And I really did lose it when you sent me the caption of Dave Bush and his wiener dog. I know. It just happens. It just happens. Didn't pick it. Uh, the sun, this is perfect. The sun is almost down, so it's time to bring out the vampires. No, I'm sorry. To bring out the, uh, the double clicks, who are um, uh, probably everybody in this room knows who the double clicks are. Since it's being recorded, I'll, I'll do an introduction to 
so those of you listening later know, is uh, the Double Clicks are two sisters who recently had an incredibly successful Kickstarter campaign that's allowed Aubrey to quit her day job and them to focus on music full-time. And uh, not only in the tradition of Portland being here, coming to Portland being musicians, but also this sort of entrepreneurialism, independence, recording their old stuff, being as geeky as, you know, as they want to be, as we want them to be, and uh, being part of, I think, a big wave of music that uh, it's not niche anymore. It's, a, it's a, a very large category that I think was totally untapped before you had the ability to reach your audience this way. And now you found all of us, and they're here to perform. This is a special appearance. You've got concerts coming up. You can tell people that. And uh, uh, do a few songs for us to celebrate. And thank you for, thank you for coming out and being part of this. We were thinking about trying to be sophisticated because there are journalists here. But we decided that we're going to sing our sing-along songs about superheroes because I want to see if you'll sing along if you're standing in a bookstore. We'll see what happens. Who's joining? Would you rather have flights or invisibility? Or would you rather have the power to control the creatures of the sea? Would you rather be able to rapidly change your size? Or would you rather be able to squirt blood out of your eyes? That would be the worst superpower ever. The worst superpower ever. That would be the worst superpower ever. Such a place. What? 
Oh. Okay, so there's one swear in this word, and we like to not swear during the daytime. Um, so I need a two-syllable word uh, that is something you don't like. That is not a swear. What's that? Boogers. Boogers, okay, cool. <laughs> that will replace the swear in the song. Thank you. <laughs>
She's gonna be right back. That's my sister Angela. I'm Aubrey. This is my cello. We're really excited to be here tonight. And she's back. This next song has feelings in it, so I took off my sunglasses. Um, this is a song about uh, the Mars Science Laboratory, Mars Curiosity, the current Mars rover on Mars. Mars. Um, and for some reason, creative people really like this song. I don't know why. Because <laughs> it's just about space, nothing else. Um, yeah, but you guys like space, right? Okay. Cool. Science called Impossible.
Thank you so much, Ben, for having us. We're going to play one more song. Um, we are from here in Portland, and we're having a CD release on June 26th at the Secret Society. Um, we're bringing out uh, Bill Corbett, who was in Mystery Science Theater 3000, and putting on our big occasional variety show. So if you want to see us, that's a good place. Um, this is a song about believing in yourself. You're not the right shape, and you're not the right size. You don't get along with others, but you need to realize that the actors in the movies are not what you're supposed to be. You are good the way you are, because you are you. That's best you see. We've all been looking for role models and turned our eyes to Hollywood, but that's not where to find them. Look to yourself. Yes, that is good. It's okay. The lost raptor. Too hard, Velociraptor. You are good the way you are, Velociraptor. Rock, Velociraptor. very much for bearing back. Uh, uh, so next up, uh, Ellie Blue, who is another Portlander, of course, we've got places littered with people from Portland. Uh, and uh, so Ellie is, um, Ellie and I talked recently on the podcast I host called The New Disruptors about her publishing career and about being a feminist, bicycle activist. I did that right, right? It's a very defined term. And so you should listen to this episode because we talk a lot about, again, all these themes we keep coming back to is uh, doing it for yourself. The whole issue of, um, you know, she's a serial Kickstarter user, but as a tool to get these ideas, she wants to get out into the world. And it's a lovely thing. So Ellie came to me with a pitch about Bachfietze, about Dutch cargo bicycles, at the same time as an old friend of mine who lives in Amsterdam or outside Amsterdam came to me with nearly the identical complimentary pitch, and it was the weirdest bit of timing, so they both wrote stories. So Ellie's was about the transformation she's seen happen in communities and what cargo bikes could be in this country, and my friend Leon wrote about what cargo bikes mean in the Netherlands and how it's part of how the cultures evolve, and um, not just like bicycling, but the fact that you can use bikes for everything. So it was this perfect meshing. So Ellie's going to read a little bit from her account of the transformative effects of cargo bikes. And also, again, Ellie has some lovely of her many books and zines for sale. Afterwards, well, thank you. Can we get a little bit? Oh, I'll yeah. Just, I'll lower this. Yeah. Because how tall we are relative to each other. <laughs> so, if you're wondering what a Bach Feats bike is, I mean, you live in Portland, so I'm sure you've seen one. Um, there's a picture of it on the cover. This is a book that I did not publish, but I wrote. It's called Everyday Bicycling How to Ride a Bike for Transportation, and it will tell you how to do what I'm about to talk about and many more things. My story is called Hub and Spoke. So Sarah Armstrong faced a classic transportation dilemma five years ago. 
She, her husband, and their three young boys had lived in New Haven, Connecticut for about a year. New Haven is where I'm from, by the way. Um, and I biked there everywhere on the sidewalk. Uh, partly because I didn't know any better, but partly because like the option was not very good. Um, so Armstrong had just become, begun a full-time job, and her older boys, five-year-old twins, would start kindergarten in the fall at the school where she worked. It was too far for them to walk, but she also felt it was too close to justify the environmental impact of driving them in the family minivan. She needed an alternative that didn't seem to exist. You need a Bachfeetz, her friend told her one day. A European family bicycle. Bachfeetz, literally box bike in Dutch, her friend explained, looked like a wheelbarrow, but can carry multiple children. She had read about such bikes on an environmental blog. Armstrong had no idea what her friend meant, but she wrote the word down to look up later. Cycling would be perfect, she thought. Her husband regularly commuted by bike, often with their two-year-old in a seat on his vintage English road bike, but she had never seen a bicycle that could carry more than one child. Her biking horizons were about to expand. Armstrong had already gone from joking about buying a pedicab to beginning to research purchasing one when her friend mentioned the Bachfeeds. Armstrong plugged the word into a Google search and she said, I became a woman possessed. She spent every spare moment that fall and winter researching cargo bicycles, visiting every website she could, she could find that mentioned family bicycling and trying to track down owners of the contraptions in nearby states. She read blogs based in Western Massachusetts, West Virginia, Seattle, Chicago, um, and thought if other families could get around by bikes in unlikely places without a lot of bicycle culture infrastructure, why not hers? Bachfietzen, which is the plural of Bachfietz in Dutch, uh, are perfectly practical in the Netherlands, where hopping on a bicycle is as normal and taken for granted as climbing in a car to go to a U.S. mall. But they are not well suited to many U.S. cities. They are built like tanks, weighing about as much as weighing as much as 100 pounds, even before you stow your kids in bags of groceries in them. They come with limited gearing and brakes designed for level surfaces on dry roads. They're very popular in Portland. They also cost more than $3,000 each, a bargain for a vehicle intended to replace a car, but far more than your average entry-level bicycle. Uh, few North American retailers carry them, which adds high shipping costs to the total and makes the bikes difficult to test ride before purchasing. They can be difficult to ride, their lumbering pace is not compatible with US streets designed to progress automobile traffic smoothly at 25 to 30 miles per hour. And a heavy, while well, a heavy bicycle can really only go five or 10 miles an hour, on level ground. Uh, Armstrong faced the additional difficulty that she had nowhere to park the bike. Her family lived in a walk-up apartment with no garage. Nonetheless, a plan began to form. She and her husband decided that they would wait until the snow melted, then spring for the bike and see what happened. Seems like a reasonable idea. Um, as far as the city, however, New Haven is not inherently unsuited to cycling. It's small, it's relatively flat, it has a grid of reasonably wide streets. Um, some factors, however, have conspired to make it more difficult to bike there. Over the past half century, freeways were built right through downtown neighborhoods, post-war depopulation, and the subsequent ravages of urban renewal took their toll. Uh, a hub-and-spoke layout of fast, shoulderless arterials makes it difficult to access the suburbs by any means but a car. Oh, I talk about how I met Sarah Armstrong in a coffee shop during a snowstorm. Um, when I was visiting New Haven and how it almost redeemed the city for me. Well, her family started a critical mass ride in New Haven in 2011. In case you're not familiar with critical mass, it's about the cutest thing in the entire world. And there's one happening in Portland, I think, soon. But if you Google it, you'll find it. It's really, really charming. 
Um, so let's see, they bought the bike in March 2009. It served the family so well that within five months they had bought a second cargo bicycle. She never told me where they store them. At that time, they'd been the only family in New Haven that had cargo bikes. But by 2011, when she started the Kittical Mass Ride, there were more of these families than she could count. Essentially, like they had started the trend. People saw them riding constantly. She said she couldn't go anywhere without people being like, what is that thing? Where do I get one? Um, and essentially, by the time I visited it last year in 2013, I was there on bike to work day, and it was like this whole like park full of families biking to school. It was really, really incredible. It was like there were dozens of them, a lot of them on cargo bikes. So I'm just going to say that, yeah, being obsessed with something really, really impractical can sometimes change the world. At least that's what I'm banking on. <laughs> Thank you all. So for our last number tonight, we've got Chris Higgins, a frequent and veteran contributor to the magazine. Uh, and Chris, uh, Chris broke us when he submitted his first piece. Of, uh, so the magazine was founded by Marco Armit, and he built the app that, that uh, still runs it to this day. And uh, he wanted to support footnotes because footnotes are a great thing. And he developed this great way where you could tap, you get this neat pop-up, and it was kind of great use of iOS and, and so forth. So we put footnotes in an article. Then Chris submits this article, and it has 17 footnotes in it. The marker said, no more. We're never. So Chris wins in terms of the number of footnotes that will ever go into any article we ever do. And as a tribute to that, um, this is also gets into some of the vagaries of publishing. So we have a hardcover book that was funded by the Kickstarter campaign. You can see here in front of you, 216 pages, 28 stories. But we also have an ebook. And because the Kickstarter hit a stretch goal, we put 40 stories in the ebook. But because we had that done, I converted that so we print on demand book that we're testing. So if you want the ebook, but you want it in print form, in black and white, because it's less expensive, and they can print it in Europe without shipping it from here. They print it on site in Europe and can ship it for a few dollars. This is a way for us to reach European customers without shipping giant pallets of expensive heavy books. So it's a very interesting thing. So Chris's story about Tetris uh, it, with the 17 footnotes cut down a little bit for print. Uh, appears in the extended ebook edition and the print on demand edition and online. And uh, he's going to read the footnotes as an appropriate gesture to close out the ebook. So, Chris, come on. Can I use this for my water? Is that cool? Yeah. All right. I'm a very water centric reader. Um, yeah, so as Ben said, this is uh, the magazine, the book, the paperback. <laughs> it's the only one I've seen as yet, so I guess see me later if you want to look at it. Um, this article came out of two days. Uh, one day was in 2012, I want to say, when I was refereeing at the Classic Tetris World Championship. Just let that sink in, which is a thing that happens in Portland, uh, and also one time in L.A., and there was a movie made about it that a friend of mine made. Um, but I was refereeing uh, these people playing... Tetris on a Nintendo, like original Nintendo hardware, thrift shop TV type deal. Um, and I was somewhat prepped by having seen the film, but not at all for what I would experience in my heart by these Tetris masters, because fundamentally this was people who were in a, a weird subculture and they were all fighting to be the best Tetris player in the world, um, and they were all best friends. So like anybody who won would ruin the lives of the other 
35 awesome Tetris players. And the second night was when I was in Toronto um, for a work thing, and I'd been gifted this thing called ice wine. I don't know if anybody knows what that, I don't know what that is. Um, I, Cisco had given a bottle of ice wine to each of these developers, and I had just drank it because I didn't know how much alcohol uh, it was, so that's when I wrote the pitch. And this is my first story. It actually was submitted with 24 footnotes, and I, I count 19 that are surviving in here. So footnote number one, oh, it says playing to lose, uh, how competitive Tetris players approach an unwinnable game. Uh, footnote one, in the game of Tetris, originally developed in 1984, uh, sorry, I'll restart. Footnote one, the game of Tetris, originally developed in 1984, sports blocks of four units in various shapes, descending one unit at a time, inexorably, from the top up to the bottom of the screen. A player moves blocks left or right and rotates them around their axis to fill holes in incomplete rows at the bottom. A fill row disappears, scoring points. The game speeds up over time, varying by version. A player loses when the screen fills with incomplete rows of blocks. In most versions, there is no way to win. <laughs> Incidentally, they're laid out as Tetris pieces. There's like the L block and the I block. Um, nice touch. Footnote two, at the classic Tetris World Championship, players are allowed to start games of, quote, A-type Tetris, played on vintage Nintendo hardware at any point from levels 9 to 16 or on level 18. But why not level 17? 2012 CTWC organizer Adam Cornelius tells me and the other referees that, quote, on level 17, the colors are kind of a mauve and violet and don't stand out against the black background enough. All the TVs are different. It could cause a big disadvantage if one player had a lower contrast TV. And level 17 is just really ugly. <laughs> Footnote three. The NES was released in the US in 1985. NES Tetris in 89. Both men were born in the 1980s. By the way, this is a profile of Ben Mullen and Bo Style, who are two of the many, many Tetris masters involved. In Tetris, topping out occurs when the stack of pieces reaches the top of the screen, ending the game. Um, so when people are professional Tetris players, they often refer to this, to losing, as topping out. Also, I should point out that losing is synonymous with winning, because there is no winning condition in Tetris. Hello, podcast people. This is Chris Higgins. Uh, at this point in the recording, Glenn's batteries died. So we don't have the live audio of the end of my uh, footnote extravaganza, but we do have me in my home studio, which is totally a thing that exists, um, reading the rest of the footnotes for you. I'm going to pick up where I left off. Footnote 5. For comparison's sake, my best game of Tetris ever was around 50,000 points, and that involved a lot of screaming at the TV. Footnote 6. Top NES Tetris players often bring their own controllers to competitions, like athletes carrying their own bats or musicians their instruments. Mullen brought his own, but Style used an on-site controller, since he had bought an NES only months earlier and its two included controllers weren't great. Footnote 7. Ben Mullen began playing in 1989, but says he only got, quote, serious about Tetris around 1999. Footnote 8. In NES Tetris, the score counter stops at 999999. The game does not. It is only possible to score 999,999 points at very high levels, typically level 29, making it a rare achievement. 
Because of its insane difficulty, and perhaps because it's well known to most players, NES Tetris is the canonical Tetris used in the classic Tetris World Championship. Uh, a side note here, there is no canonicity to which Tetris exists in the world, but a lot of readers have asked, you know, why did they use the NES version? And the answer really is simply that people uh, have played it for quite a while at home. Footnote 9. Scoring a, quote, Tetris means clearing four lines at once, only achievable by dropping a long bar vertically into a slot. This grants the player a huge score boost, 1,200 points times one higher than the current level's number, thus 1,200 times level plus one. Mullen refers to his one Tetris away from a perfect score games as, quote, one-aways. So, side note, uh, Mullen had one, he had tried to play for the max many times. He had gotten uh, one away, I think, eight times. Anyway, for example, on March 7th, 2012, Mullen earned a 996,500-point score on level 28. That's just three lines, or one four-line Tetris, away from a max out. His Facebook comment, I have no words. Footnote 10. Moen explained in an email, The most rage I ever felt in the game was the month after Matt Bucco maxed out in January 2012. The rage allowed me to play more than normal, and with more anger than normal, and with better outcomes than normal. End quote. This is about the uh, topic of, quote, Rage Tetris, which was something that uh, Ben Mullen excels at. Footnote 11. Harry Hong was the first NES Tetris player with a documented max out, recorded in 2009. A side note on that one, that's covered extensively in the, in the documentary Ecstasy of Order, the Tetris Masters, which I mentioned earlier. Footnote 12. Ben Mullen's rank is reflected in a community-run leaderboard, maintained by Tetris Grandmaster Alex Kerr. So some explanation on that one. Uh, Tetris Grandmaster is a, I believe, a Japanese version of the game. It's an arcade game, uh, so you play it at an arcade cabinet with a joystick, and it's most notable for, at the end of the game, turning invisible uh, for a period of time. I believe it's uh, 60 seconds. If you, what, what happens in this mode is the stack at the bottom of the screen becomes invisible, so you have to have memorized where things were, and the pieces that fall are also invisible. You see the kind of next box, you know what piece will fall, but the player has to rotate the piece without seeing it, move the piece without seeing it, and drop it into the stack also without seeing it. And if you survive uh, for a time in this mode, you win the rank of Tetris Grandmaster. And I, last time I checked, Alex Kerr was the only one of these guys uh, in our hemisphere, uh, he's a fantastic guy, and he, he maintains quite a lot of Tetris uh, lore online. Footnote 13. Ben Mullen's Max Out game is on YouTube in its entirety, as are many others. And I honestly, I would encourage you to go Google uh, Tetris Max Out and watch a video and have some like heart pills nearby, because it's terrifying. It's just, it's really fast. Footnote 14. Tetris tracks the number of lines cleared in addition to the player's score. Separate records are maintained for lines and points. This is in reference to a portion of the article in which uh, one player had played for a, a lines high score, whereas others had been playing for a points high score. They're independent. Footnote 15. The records kept by Twin Galaxies have appeared and disappeared from the web in the past year, apparently as the result of an ownership change. At the moment, the website is completely offline. 
again, a side note here, this was true when the article was published. Um, it became untrue, and now it's true again. Uh, Twin Galaxies is just kind of all over the place. Footnote 16. Ben Mullen says he listens to, quote, 90s music or golden oldies, end quote, and turns the Tetris music off, though he leaves the sound effects on, which he calls, quote, the beeps, end quote, so he can use them for feedback. Style watches either sports or shows he can mostly ignore. He says that's the only way he can still watch Dexter. Footnote 17. What appeals to me most about these players is their unabashed pursuit of a series of white whales. When Mullen couldn't win the championship, he raged his way into a max-out, a goal that had eluded him for years. Style is only half a year into his quest for the max-out. It could be days, months, or years before he achieves it, but he just keeps trying. For competitive Tetris players, record-setting success arrives in an instant, after a series of defeats that stretches over staggering lengths of time. Footnote 18. I'm going to break in here and, and tell you a little bit about uh, the article. There are different variants of Tetris, as I said. There's, you know, Nintendo Tetris, and there's a special one called Tengen Tetris, which was available for the Nintendo for a very brief time, I think a, a month or thereabouts, and was later uh, the subject of a legal battle. So Tengen does different things. It, it plays differently. And there's a series of footnotes here about Tengen Tetris. So footnote 18. The Tengen Tetris score counter flips over to 100,000 rather than to the more obvious zero, which makes keeping track of scores in the millions an exercise in arithmetic. Style writes, An easy way to look at it is, the first flip is a million. Every other one after that is plus 900,000. End quote. Now, what this refers to is the fact that Tengen Tetris doesn't max out at 999999. It flips over and keeps going, so you can play it in kind of a marathon mode. It's still extremely fast. I mean, a normal person would not be capable of doing this without, without training, but for a Tetris master, it's a comparatively leisurely top speed. Footnote 19. When attempting a marathon, no bathroom breaks or pauses are allowed though Tengen Tetris does periodically pause itself between levels, showing statistics and counting up points, allowing the player a roughly half-minute respite to stretch his or her thumbs. Tengen players joke that it's only a matter of time before someone attempts a marathon record while wearing a diaper. And the last piece here, I'll read the afterword of the article, which is uh, still accurate. Afterword. After this article was first published, both men continued playing. Style maxed out on August 29th, 2013. Mullen maxed out twice more in 2013 and achieved the highest Super Nintendo Tetris score yet recorded. Mullen remains the number 7 NES Tetris player in the world, and Style is now number 11. In a surprising twist, the pair squared off again in the round of 16 at the Classic Tetris World Championship in 2013. I refereed their match, again, and it was another tense battle. Style took the first game, Mullen the second, and Mullen the third, the exact opposite outcome of their match in 2012. This allowed Mullen to advance in the tournament this time. Style joked, for the second year in a row, the better player lost. And that is the footnotes for playing to lose. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for listening to this special episode of The New Disruptors, in which we took you live on the spot to uh, book reading and musical performance to mark the end of a, a long journey. That day in, in April, when we did this book event just a few weeks ago, that really is the end of a long trip that started over a year ago to bring the Kickstarter into fruition, to then pull together the funding, and then uh, to produce this this thing, this book, this hardcover and ebook collection. And it was great to have everyone along for the ride. Thanks for everyone's backing of the campaign if you did and for your support and uh, again if you want to get your own copy of the book go to v-magazine.com slash book and you can find out about the several ways to order the electronic and paperback and hardcover editions if you haven't already You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. (music) 